Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 11th. Today, how a TV documentary became the tipping point for a Me Too reckoning. Plus, the cheap eats double standard and finding peace with technology. R. Kelly has long been known as a hitmaker, the guy who sang Ignition and I Believe I Can Fly. But he's also known for something else for the allegations from women who say that he sexually, emotionally, and physically abused them for years. It's as grim as you can imagine it. Jeff Edgers, the Post's national arts reporter, covered R. Kelly's scandals and his alleged abuse against women, which, for the record, R. Kelly categorically denies. There's one wave of allegations, which is basically that he preys on underage girls and has had sexual relationships with them as an adult, and that when he was caught for that, and rather than being convicted, he has all of these agreements he's made and payoffs he's made, non-disclosure agreements. You know, I have, I think, five of them in my files with these women, basically paying them off for silence. So that's one wave of it. But Jeff says that the alleged abuse evolved into other serious examples of control and restriction. Then there's the more recent wave, which is complicated in a different way, which is basically that he has this group of women that are living with him that he has sexual relationships with. I mean, these women are of legal age, but there's a a sense that they're being held against their will or that they're susceptible to being, being victims here. And you've got parents of these young women who are saying they're, you know, we can't see our daughters. So that's the other piece of this. But I mean, it all wraps up into the same thing. He's basically accused of having all of these relationships with younger women that are not healthy relationships. News organizations, including The Washington Post, have reported extensively on Kelly's behavior. But after he was acquitted in a child pornography case in 2008, continued allegations never seemed to catch up with him. That was true even after the Me Too movement brought down men like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby. But now, a new Lifetime series has made people pay attention. I think that the response that we've been receiving and seeing is very overwhelming. There's so many celebrities like Jada Pinkett Smith that spoke out that we had no clue was going to speak out. Then Nia Long spoke out. You know, Tank, who is an R&B artist, spoke out. Neo spoke out. Tamara Simmons is an executive producer of the six-part docu-series Surviving R. Kelly. The series has attracted almost 19 million views, the highest ratings for Lifetime in two years. And in the series, several women come forward to share their stories of alleged sexual and emotional abuse by Kelly, some claiming that they were underage when it happened. Our relationship was beautiful in the beginning, but... um didn't know about the storm on the horizon. He would break you down. He would turn around and say, I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one who cares about you. I was mentally drained. Robert feels as if he's invincible. I can't be touched. And in hindsight, 
in society, we kind of made them feel that way. The question is, how could this have gone on for so long? I'll tell you how it's allowed to go on for so long. R. Kelly staged a marriage with an underage girl named Aaliyah. We've all heard of her. He had her create a, a fake birth certificate, and then they were married, and it was annulled when it was found that she was not legally old enough to marry. That was a long time ago, 1994. So the thing to remember there is R. Kelly has made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He was one of the biggest selling artists for RCA and Sony. And so these people who are in charge turned a blind eye to it. I mean, you reach Clive Calder, who never talks about this, who lives on the Cayman Islands. And after I talked with him, he changed his number. He, he expressed regret that they didn't deal with Kelly in the right way. But, you know, it was a very different time. And for whatever reason, our society accepted things in a different way. So while people today, I don't think would allow him to exist in that way without doing, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just so startling to me that a grown man marries an underage girl in plain sight and nothing happens. Tamara says that one of the reasons why these allegations weren't believed or paid attention to is because they came from black or brown women. You know, they say that we're, we're tearing down the race by putting this out in front of the world. And But on the flip side, you know, we argue that he's been protected for decades because of his race. So I feel like as black people, you know, we have a tendency to sweep things like this under the rug. And that just elevates the problem and guarantees that there will be other victims. But then we ask questions like, how many of you have, you know, a family member that you know that has done something similar? And uh, do you think that person's behavior is, you know, contained just to your family? So there's certain questions that we that we ask as a race that I ask myself. I have a daughter as well. And I'm like, what if this happens to my daughter? Would she come to me and tell me? I believe that in our community, we don't shed light on things like this only because we are, the victims are often found, you know, ashamed and not supported. But I believe this time it's it's totally different. Since the documentary aired, there has been an overwhelming reaction, including one notable apology from the music world. Lady Gaga, who collaborated with Kelly in 2013, and now says that she's pulling that collaboration from streaming platforms. Tamara says there's a reason why that apology didn't happen before surviving R. Kelly. If you're an artist and you're working with someone that has written major records and world-changing records, and then you didn't see him go to jail, you didn't see him be found guilty. So years pass by, people forget about it. It's swept under the rug. So because it's not continuously in your face, you forget what type of person this person could possibly be or how the world painted this person to be this way years ago, even though he beat the charges and it was dropped and et cetera. So in your mind, you're like, he didn't do it. You know, I can't speak for Lady Gaga, but that's what I can only assume is that artists continue to work with him because he wasn't found guilty. This week, authorities in Fulton County, Georgia, said they are looking into claims from a father that his daughter is being held in R. Kelly's Chicago home against her will. And in Illinois, the state's attorney made a call for any witnesses of these allegations to come forward. And so you have to wonder, maybe this is a tipping point. Let's see when Sony or any record company ever puts out another R. Kelly 
record. Let's see when he's on Jimmy Fallon again, because I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he's going to be playing Coachella. You know, I think that he is toast in many ways. It's just that it hasn't been necessarily written that way. It hasn't been explicitly explained that way. But, you know, if you if you look at all the markers of, of success as an artist, playing healthy tours, releasing albums, working with artists of, of like nature, you know, that stuff's all sort of off the table for him. Jeff Edgers writes about the arts for The Post. You can find all his reporting on R. Kelly at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. So David Chang is a, a famously opinionated chef. And one of the things he started talking about was his ramen and how expensive it is to make it because it's a it's a long process. It's a multi-hour process to make ramen. And he was using very good ingredients. That's Tim Carmen, food columnist here at The Post. And he's recalling a conversation he had with restaurant owner David Chang, who got his start with the Momofuku noodle bar. And he was frustrated that he felt like you couldn't charge $17 or $18 for a bowl of ramen. He said people have believed that ramen should be, you know, $10, $11, $12, and that's kind of, that's going to be the ceiling. And he, at one point, he said, yeah, you know, if I had, if I called this uh, an Italian brodo with brisket, you know, which is kind of like an Italian soup with beef. Very similar to ramen. So similar to ramen. He could charge, you know, 20-some dollars for it, and people wouldn't blink an eye, but call it ramen, and, you know, he's got this price limit, and he said he's he's really tired of what he called, like, the ethnic price ceiling. And it really stuck with me, like that phrase, the ethnic price ceiling. Um, I, it really hit me hard, and, and you know, not just because he was frustrated, because it just rang true to me. And that's one of the things that prompted Tim to make a change. Because for years, he's written a column in the Post called The $20 Diner, basically reviewing restaurants that could be labeled as cheap eats. But a couple weeks ago, he made a big announcement. He's dumping the name. And he did that because he felt that it was disadvantaging restaurants that serve what people would call ethnic cuisine. Well, it wasn't any great epiphany in talking to the people and the restaurateurs and the chefs that that I cover, it became clear to me that writing about these restaurants under the umbrella of the $20 diner, which is really just another way of saying cheap eats, I'm essentially crippling them and telling them that they can never uh, grow into something that's more refined and more in the fine dining realm. And uh, I just didn't want to do that. And if they try to charge more than $20 for their entrees, you're not going to write about them anymore. That's right. That's what I was telling them. And so you started to worry that the, the central concept of your column was actually like reconfirming that idea that like these are the kinds of places that are cheap, you know, Senegalese food or sometimes Mexican food or, you know, places that are not like French, Italian, Japanese. And that like the other places, those like Western establishments are the places that are more deserving of of a higher price point. Completely. I mean – yeah, it's like by framing the whole column as cheap eats and establishing in people's mind week in and week out that this is something that they can afford and make it cheap, I, I 
increasingly felt uncomfortable with this idea that um, I was permanently boxing them in this category of cheap eats, and it felt it felt to me unfair. And I was, I mean, over the years, I just had a harder time reconciling that with the people that I wrote about and their struggles, and I wanted to change it. So then what did you decide to do? So we just decided that it would really have no name. It would just kind of be under my byline. You know, I'll continue, and I think this is really important because I think some people think by dropping the name, uh, I'm not going to be focused on the same kind of restaurants, but uh, I will. I'll be focused on the same restaurants. Um, I just don't want to put it under the Cheap Eats umbrella. I don't want to give it this idea that people, it will always be cheap. And so you wrote a whole column about your decision to get rid of the name of the column. Yes, I did. Um, and it, boy, it drew a lot of attention, as you can imagine, sort of pro and con. Well, um, what did people say? I would say uh, from the immigrant communities, uh, there was a lot of support. And uh, I think from the class of folks who maybe don't have to think about their status in society, they were frustrated. And, you know, I, I try I try not Fr- to frustrated judge. Frustrated how? They're fr- frustrated because the I'm just trying to imagine like what kinds of what their message was I mean was it generally like this is a dumb idea just go back to $20 diner or like was there like if you could sort of there was there was a sense of that I was uh, virtue signaling in the column there were some people that thought that the column did not have was not offensive that the title was not offensive and I was being too sensitive about it I think someone someone told me something recently that stuck said if you um when a paradigm shifts and you don't notice it you're probably part of the paradigm mm. and I think that's true I think you know if you can't see what this shift was about you you maybe need to re you know look at it from a different perspective I I found this decision and your column about it so compelling because this sense that we have about what kind of food is cheap food and what is like food that is like really worthy of praise and attention is so deeply embedded, I feel like, in all of us. I remember that this this restaurant opened up recently on the wharf, which is this like fancy new neighborhood in Southwest DC, and it's called Kithkin and Kwame and Wachi's restaurant. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and he is part Trinidadian, part Jamaican, and part Nigerian, and his food reflects that. And my mom's family is Trinidadian, and I grew up eating Trinidadian food, and I just remember like pulling up the website with the menu and being like so shocked, but also so proud to see goat roti for like $24, you know, like something that, that in, you know, you have your like corner Caribbean store that will sell roti for $6 or $7, but to see it in this upscale restaurant with these fancy menus, like right on the waterfront, I was like, wow, this is a big deal. Like this is so, I've never ever seen this before. And it's exciting to think about like challenging what deserves to be in a fancy restaurant on the waterfront. Completely. And like, I'm curious if when you saw the $24 roti, did you think, that's ridiculous. There was, there was a small part of me that was like, this is really expensive. <laughs> I could get the same thing at a, a corner store for way less. But but then there was a part of me that was like, the same is true for pizza, right? Or for Italian food. You know, I could, I could get 
$50 Italian food, I could get $10 Italian food, and like there should be room for both of those things. Exactly. It, it's not an either-or equation. Thank you so much, Tim. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, one more thing. People might know Deepak Chopra as a spiritual guru, one of the most well-known figures of the New Age movement. But it turns out he's also an unlikely tech geek. Tech reporter Jeff Fowler has more from this year's Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Deepak Chopra, the wellness and healing advisor to millions, is the last person I would expect to be a tech junkie. And yet... I use technology, I use wearables. Is that a That's a Fitbit, Fitbit yeah. Okay. Which can now be incorporated in your home mm-hmm. if you want. I monitor my sleep. I monitor my breathing. I monitor my exercise. I monitor my heart rate. I monitor my heart rate variability, which is a measure of stress. And as a result, I'm able to change my behavior and improve my health. He checks his heart rate. It's 68 beats per minute. I can consciously bring it down with a little breathing and meditation to to 45 or 48. And so now this technology is helping me become a better yogi. And the tech is not just on his body. I live in a smart home. So you have the lights that are adjusted, you have it all? Yeah, I have it all. I think in today's age, everybody is a tech guy. You have to be, otherwise you become irrelevant. But wait, isn't all this tech also harming us? I think technology has created a lot of stress for a lot of people, but that's not the fault of technology. It's the fault of the people who use technology. Still, he does try to be mindful in how he uses his gadgets. I have a morning routine where I wake up, you know, at five o'clock, I do my meditation, yoga, exercise. Then I spend about an hour in the morning just focused, mindful technology, which means I do all my posts, my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, And then the rest of the day, I don't use technology except late in the afternoon. I catch up with my emails and all that has happened during the day. And again, it's focus. For me, even technology is a meditative experience because when I'm focused on technology, that's all I do. The Chopra mindset on tech is that we can and we must use it to elevate our humanity. Granted, he has a financial stake in this point of view. He's an advisor to a smart home company called Delos, which is why he was at CES in the first place. But he says his feelings about tech tie into a larger philosophy. You know, the fact is, every time a new development happens, there's a school of thought that this is going to ruin humanity. You're saying, let's plug even deeper, which is... Which is, I think, a Let's do people. it wisely. Let's do it wisely. You might be the biggest tech optimist that I have ever met. I'm an optimist by nature. By nature, okay. <laughs> so That includes technology. That includes technology.
That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music and does our sound design. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.